0: Listening to the Culture Feed podcast, reflections on cultivating student character and student citizenship in our schools. Today, we have part two of an interview with Dr. Jeffrey Gouin. Dr. Gouin is an assistant professor of sociology at UCLA and the author of research that examines the efforts of a sample of U.S. urban public schools to shape their students' character and citizenship. Dr. Gouin is interviewed by Angus Macbeth, a former public school teacher, principal, and superintendent in Canada. Macbeth and Gouin discuss a range of issues, including the value of principals, differing views of what constitutes respect, and Gouin's optimism about the future of education. Here is part two of the interview.
1: I, I noticed, and I thought this was one of the more illuminating parts of your study, not saying it was more important, but uh, you, you in your urban high school visits and studies, you identified two views of respect. It was like okay. a, tale of, a tale of two views of respect. Oh, right. Uh, there, there was one, and uh, not because our listeners may not have read the book, I wonder if you could quickly... Just give us a snapshot view of the two views of respect. I think many of our, our teachers and principals will say, aha, yes, I've seen that happen in my school.
2: Oh yeah. So you mean like when I talk about the difference between sort of politeness and um kind of respect as a as a worldview? So like well, yes,
1: and there was a female student, I think her name was Juana, and yeah, and her she had a different view of respect. She was, she was not disrespectful. She was not unaware of respect. But if somebody disrespected her, she felt obliged to right. punch them out or something. Right.
2: So, so there's a way of thinking of respect where, where that we think of, and what we really mean by respect isn't respect in the way Wana means it. We mean polite, right? So, polite. like, was like, do you greet each other? Do you say thank you? Do you say sorry? Do you, uh, if you're late to a meeting or whatever, and if you don't, they say, well, that was disrespectful. Um, but what we mean by that, when we say that, is really just were they polite to me. Do they sort of maintain certain social interactions? And so when um, someone is disrespectful to me in that way, like they, they don't apologize when they're late or when they sort of walk past me in the door, I don't take it that personally. I think, oh, well, that was annoying, right? And I kind of move on with my day. But if you're in this other way of thinking about respect, then certain things are actually affronts to your person, right? And so this is actually a really interesting um, uh, thing to study sociologically and anthropologically. There's been lots of studies of this. Um, It's also often used in reference to honor um, and what's called honor cultures. And I mean, certainly the very famous uh, current play Hamilton has a lot of stuff on this right you would have duels if you felt disrespected and so there's it's a big part of our own american history right that i right. had to call them out you would call them out right and if you were if, if someone disrespected your name or your family or or someone you cared about's name then you would call them out and and you would have to you know have justice in some kind of way right and so what i really wanted to emphasize so that juana gets in a fight and and she's sort of called into the principal's office and she's talking to the principal about it and what I really want to emphasize with Juana is that there's um there's a way of thinking about kids like Wana as having a deficit. Um and this is actually used a lot in education literature, that sort of deficit mindset. That wana just can't do it, right? That wana or kids can't like or Juana can't or won't can't. Can't. can't or won't either, right? She she knows the right thing to do, and she just she just doesn't have the grit or the stick-to-itiveness or the um endurance to sort of not hit that kid. And what I want to emphasize is what if instead of thinking of Juana as weak or undisciplined, we thought of Juana as just having a very different moral universe um, and existing in a space where there is a right and wrong and she knows how to do it and she knows how to conform herself to it and that right or wrong is to not let you or your family be disrespected and and that's actually a universe that is not that far from a lot of our universes, right? We most of us don't live in that universe now, but our country is not that far from it. And so, um, and so, I, and, and if we think that way, uh, then we can recognize that the key thing is is not telling Wana um, that you know she's not strong enough or she needs to restrain it, but to sort of push her to think. To sort of to sort of acknowledge that is that is a way of thinking about right and wrong, right? But here's another way to think about right and wrong. And this is the way we do it here, right? Because one of the real advantages I think of a sociology of culture, which is what I do, is we we sociologists of culture are very suspicious of um of totalizing arguments about people. Um, we tend to believe in something that Max Weber who was one of the founders of sociology called value spheres. And to give an example, if you're at work and someone ticks you off and really bothers you and you're the boss, you can fire them. If you're at home and your son does all the same things, you cannot fire your son. You have a nope. fundamentally different relationship, right? And so we're in these different locations or what Weber calls spheres. And those spheres carry with them actually radically different values. And so in modernity, unlike some mythical time in like small villages. Right. In the modern age. Right. In the modern age, we actually move every human moves through these different value spheres. And we react to people in very different ways and then wind up having very different values drive us in those organizational settings. And it's, actually kind of fascinating we don't all explode i mean we manage to find a way pretty most of us pretty adroitly to move from one to the other to the other right so you know how do we adjudicate an artwork versus how do we adjudicate um a toaster right i mean there's all sorts of things that um that we just think of very differently um and 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 we process differently and we relate to differently and and i think that What's interesting about someone like Juana is she has trouble doing that. And so most of the kids I studied might have that kind of what Elijah Anderson calls code of the street. Some of the kids, especially the ones from very low income neighborhoods, they might act like that. And I talked to some students about this. They might act like that or just feel like they have to act like that and just put on the veneer of acting like that. Of being Um, tough. Of being tough. Right. Right. and not letting anyone disrespect them. Um, not don't like,
1: mess with me.
2: Yeah, yeah. And don't let someone else disrespect you or make you look weak. Block on you. And and there's a way that they can do that in a, in a neighborhood or in certain other contexts. And then at school, they can just be like, "Well, these are these are different rules at school, right?" And and for whatever reason, you know, most kids at these schools aren't aren't like that. But there there are kids like Juana who aren't right and who. I'm sorry. Who 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 aren't able to make that that switch?
1: And she challenged her principal, as I recall, knowing what
2: to do with her. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because because to be clear, most of these kids who you know a lot of a lot of these kids come from neighborhoods not quite fam- backgrounds as harsh as Juana's, but quite a few did, and um, and quite a few come from low income uh, experiences like Juana's, and and you know they're able to make these sorts of transitions and. And and Juana's not, right? And um, and but what's interesting about someone like like Juana or or other sorts of students um, is is the their ability to do what um another sociologist calls change the definition of the situation. And so if you have student leaders or charismatic teachers or 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 charismatic students, they can shift what kind of situation are we in now, right? Are we in a situation where we have to save face more than anything else? Or are we in a situation where we can kind of trust each other and disrespect is about politeness and sort of politeness norms versus sort of this kind of existential face-saving thing? Um, and so what's interesting about one is she can bring others with her to defining the situation the way she's defining it. But then others, the principal's trying to help one to define the situation differently, too. And so there's this, you know, then this is just a very classic sociological question. There's this constant, ongoing um, effort between any people in a situation to define the situation in certain kinds of ways. It
1: certainly makes teachers' jobs difficult and challenging. I mean, we have to have a lot of respect for teachers when we look at how complex every oh, yeah. moment is in the classroom.
2: Yeah. But, but I, but I do think that. this actually, and and I found the principal, it did this with Juana, you know, really recognizing and giving legitimacy to kid, not saying the right to hit the kid. but
1: understanding it.
2: Right, understanding like this is where you you felt, I understand you felt disrespected, right? It's not that you're just weak and have poor impulse control. Like I understand you felt disrespected and you felt this is what you had to do with your disrespect.
1: And you're not a bad person then.
2: Right. Yeah, no, in right. your view, you did totally the right thing. And like, right. look, you just can't do that here, right? right. That's, that's not you how to, we understand a good person here.
1: You have to curb your impulse. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, about, this kind of is a bit of a follow-up to the last question, although I don't want you to think it's part B. Uh, students, in many schools, students experience traditional punishment for fighting, for stealing, cheating, or bullying. And you mentioned it earlier that in many cases, particularly with minority and low-income students, there is a suspension slash expulsion prison pipeline, sure. the mo- and kids get behind in school, they drop out of school, they're encouraged to miss school because of uh, needing to give students a punishment. So some schools, many schools, in order to redress this matter and to stop the pipeline, Uh stop the movement through the pipeline. They have been moving from traditional punishment, moving to restorative justice practices, processes, in which the offender and the offended sit down and in a guided conversation with adult faculty present, they work on resolution to the satisfaction of the offended. And Mm -hmm. I wondered if you thought that um, that this would make any sense? Uh, did, did you see it happening in any of the schools you studied? And mm-hmm. what was the perception of, and, and do teachers support it or do they tolerate it? Or is there some of both?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, only, I really only saw it done extremely well in, um, in one of the schools I was at. Um, and it was really impressive. Like it was very well done. Um, I, I will say that, um, they, the, the kids weren't, you know, the kids, look, I mean, you know, some kids, they get in a fight, they don't want to admit they did anything wrong, right? Or they, or, or if you get, you get picked on or you get abused, you know, you want, you want a pound of flesh, right? And so, like, that's hard work, you know, especially when you're a teenager, it's just hard work. Um but you know as you really at have every
1: age I think every it's age hard is, work at every age
2: yeah but especially <laughs> for kids it's hard work and so i mean i've actually come to believe it, the most imp- it really is true that um that a good high school needs a very 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 good principal um and it needs a very good principal um mostly to set um a tone and help to create a climate uh, in which faculty are encouraged and excited about these things.
1: So you said that the principle is crucial, the principle sets the tone, establishes the culture, reinforces the culture, uh, sets the standards, uh, and influences the behavior of adults
2: and children. Yeah, I mean, and and, and there's there's two things. One, they do that hopefully without micromanaging right? Hopefully via encouragement and like, A, for their own sanity, like principals just don't have time, but B, they, teachers need to feel trusted. I mean, teachers, right. teachers are alone most of the time, right? And they're just with, not alone, but they're alone with their adults most of the day.
1: Yep. Right? They're locked and up so, with the kids all day long.
2: And so there's not, um, you know, if they feel like someone's breathing on their neck all the time, it, you really need, that's a complicated relationship. And that's why, that's why, um, you know, and I'm sure you and, and Others know this even better than I do, but, um, you know, there's actually really interesting literature on, on teacher mentoring um, within schools, uh, mentor teachers, uh, department chairs, you know, really sort of thinking about mentoring across the the career of a teacher. And then, um, but the second thing principals do, which is also very, very important, is they, they protect um, their staff from the latest fashions, um, of which I hope my... I I I hope my 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 article doesn't become become one. I mean, much as I would like for my article to be influential, I want I want principals to do what they're passionate about. And and the last thing I want is for teachers to have, you know, yet another fashionable new idea for teaching this or that thing that they're forced to do. And so don't get me wrong, I think innovation can be helpful. I think best practices are helpful. I think it's often a good idea to shake things up. Um, but if if, if 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 schools aren't careful, they'll be reinventing the wheel every single year because someone read a new management book or something. Yeah. And so there,
1: there is no question that teachers get whipsawed by constant changes in legislation and rules from state governments, the federal government, and school districts. So it's legislative
2: um, changes, but it's also kind of like just hey, yes,
1: yes, right. absolutely. The places awash in new ideas.
2: And so and so the one thing principals are able to do is to sort of it's almost like um like like a good principal or a good administrative team um, which is more than just the principal obviously it's like they're stirring batter and they're just really slowly pouring in the next ingredient so it gets mixed in well right they're not just dropping it in right. and so you know if there is something some new idea like maybe this book or or whatever they're kind of able to really just keep a coherent culture going and just kind of gradually put that cocoa or whatever else in, right? They're not constantly forcing everyone to change everything all the time and sort of create. And so that's, that's one thing that they can create a culture from inside, but also they can keep the kind of outside pressure from being too much. And so they can also run interference with parents. You know, I mean, there's a bunch of things that like a good administrative staff does, um, that gives because this this is another really key thing ultimately the point of interface of moral development of kids is almost always teachers teachers and guidance counselors so to the degree that principals and administrative staff can free teachers up to do that it creates a world of difference i mean it's just a it's just a, a completely different school and so um you know really helping to create a culture um, helping to make teachers feel themselves free and, and agentic, right, um, is is really really uh, is I'd say more important than anything else. I, I know
1: you're a researcher and you base your opinions on fa- on evidence, uh, but but no uh, of course and uh, but I did want to ask you a hunch question, sure. Um, or, so based on your observation not too many people in society who don't work in schools have the opportunity that you had to spend such intensive time observing mm-hmm. and talking to and listening to teachers principals students and others I, are you optimistic for the future of american education in in high schools in urban high schools and if so how come or
2: not? Yeah. Well, it's a complicated answer. I'm optimistic in general. I'm sort of just an optimistic person. Uh, <laughs> I don't okay. Have a
1: lot of, okay.
2: I don't necessarily have a lot of reason to be. And so, I mean, there's a way that I'm very pessimistic um, in terms of the facts on the ground, but just by nature, I'm optimistic. And so somehow I think we'll find a way around it. I guess the reason I, I'm optimistic is I'm, I'm, you know... I'm just continually impressed by the people. The vast majority of teachers I meet are just yeah. such inspiring human beings. Right. And, and most of the kids, they're great for kids. They're doing their best, you know? And so uh, the people are great. And, and it's because the people are great that I'm optimistic, but, but there's a lot of social pressure that I don't, I don't see getting better anytime soon. Um, and, and once the student loan bubble pops, um, we're going to be in a world of hurt. And so, uh, there's just a lot of things going that make me nervous um, going forward, going forward.
1: I, I could ask questions all afternoon, but I won't. But I do have one more. If you sure, of to course, let yeah. me. So, been- <laughs> I've enjoyed this so much. So I'm thinking about uh, you've been very positive on the whole about and reverent about your regard for teachers and principals and the power of the work they do. And having been in that sphere myself since 1972, um, I'm familiar with the heroic actions of people that aren't always accorded the respect they deserve. Uh, But I wondered, given your experience, and I'm not classifying you as somebody who's an expert in public education, but do you have any advice for the high schools, urban high schools? Is there something you think, if you just thought about this, I'm not asking you to tell me how to do something specifically, but do you have any advice, any, any perspective that you think should be shared with the uh, teachers and principals toughen it out every day in our urban high schools and who might be watching and listening to this?
2: I think English and history teachers already know this, but I think math and science teachers and even some English and history teachers and other kinds of teachers should know kids kids are ready are ready for the big questions kids are kids even fourteen year olds even 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 first year students, they're more ready for the big questions than you think um and they're they're wiser and smarter about them often
1: right so carpe diem
2: and yeah, and so don't don't feel like even though the test is there all the time and the pressure of the test is there all the time, don't be afraid to ask the kids, you know. Why is there death? How do we deal with suffering? Why is there this unequ- inequality in the world? How? It, what would should it be fair? Should we have, you know, universal basic income? Was that fair? And like, I think when I observe kids having those conversations, it forced them to think about the kinds of "why" questions that I'm talking about, um, and not necessarily come to the answer. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure that's actually the job of a public school, but uh, or, or a teacher, right? or a teacher, but to really get kids to think, think think in hard, challenging ways. And, and, you know, there are some certain kids who, you know, are joking off, but even the kids were, I found this myself as a high school teacher, even the kids I thought were sleeping or <laughs> just sarcastic the whole time would find me, you know, afterwards and say, you know, I was really thinking about what you said in class or what, you know, Elizabeth said in class. Um, and I don't think that's true, right? And then they would sort of, clearly they were engaging it, right? And 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 I think I think kids are as hungry as humans have ever been um, for meaning and and for meaningful conversation um, and to to figure out what it all means and um, and they need people they they know they need people they know aren't going to make fun of them about it because right. it's it's a really earnest thing I mean it's a really earnest thing to say. I'm trying to figure out what makes me happy and how to live, you know, and that's scary. You know, you're really putting yourself out there. And so if if you can be a teacher who helps create a, a communal space where kids feel safe to ask and answer those kinds of questions, um, you're doing something I think really, really beautiful and important. Um, and that's, and, and that's creating a kind of counter space, even if it's just the 40 minutes of your class, um, to the kind of rigid meritocratic rat race, right? Where we kind of all are able to think, um, think about what matters to us. And, and, you know, how of mice and men makes us think about friendship and loyalty, um, and that kind of thing. And, you know, that's that's why I became a teacher and and it's why I I continue to teach the way I do and um and study teachers. And so um it's uh it is something that I I think. A lot of teachers already know, but i i don't I don't think it. I don't think it hurts to repeat it. That you can, you can, you can, right. you can trust it. The kids want meaning, and kids are. I think, are
1: looking, looking I for think it. teachers need to be given permission from time to time to yeah. remind them. I yeah. went into teaching to shape the lives of these young people and to create a civilized place for that to happen.
2: Right. Exactly.
1: Um, I cannot thank you enough for this opportunity to speak with you, Dr. Guo. Jeff. It's been tremendous. Uh, I hope that many people watch your interview and I appreciate it so much. I hope we can do
2: a follow up. Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks very much.
0: If you liked this second and final part of the interview with Dr. Gouin, but have not heard the first, you can access it on the culture feed podcast page, where you can also subscribe to our podcast series and share our podcast on any of your favorite podcast sites. Thank you for tuning in to the Culture Feed podcast.